0: ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: All right, really excited about the podcast this week. I am going to be joined by not one, but two ETF pioneers. And not only that, I'll also be joined by ETF.com's resident crypto expert. And no question, Bitcoin and crypto will be threaded throughout all three of these conversations. So first up will be ETF.com's Sameet Roy. We're going to discuss Bitcoin ETFs. and i would say not from the usual angle yes everyone wants to know when the sec will approve these products and we will touch on that however there are some other interesting aspects here including how etf issuers are going to position themselves from a competitive standpoint so think fees and, and marketing, how someone like Grayscale is going to play this out with their Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, which they have said they're going to convert to an ETF. So Samita and I are going to bat around several topics here. I'll then be joined by Hector McNeil, co-CEO of Han ETF, and someone who I would say his reputation in ETFs really precedes him. He's been involved in the launch of over 500 ETPs across multiple countries. He's absolutely a pioneer in the European ETF uh, ETF space. And as it turns out, on his platform right now, there exists a Bitcoin exchange traded product. This thing is live and trading in Germany and Switzerland. They also have Ethereum and Litecoin products. So I can't wait to hear his thoughts on how the SEC has handled everything here in the U.S. with Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, And along with that, we'll, of course, talk about his rich ETF history, the European ETF landscape, and, and much more. Again, really excited about this. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Greg King, founder and CEO, of Osprey Funds. He's also founder and CEO of ETF issuer RecShares. And Greg has been involved in the launch of over 100 exchange traded products, including the first ETPs tracking VIX, broad based commodities, and FANG stocks. And we're going to focus on the Osprey Bitcoin Trust, which is the lowest cost Bitcoin fund in the US. Along with that, Osprey just launched a Polkadot Trust last week. Polkadot is another crypto token, so we'll talk about that as well. Questions or comments? You can find me on Twitter at Nate Geracey, or you can go to ETFPrime.com. Let's start with ETF.com. Meet Roy. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com, the world's leading independent authority on ETFs.
2: Just like with the stock. It's a function of the volume of the security. You can often put your limit order in between those two prices. That's if you still concerned about how do you value cryptocurrencies.
1: Samit, great having you back on the pod. And you get to cover one of my favorite topics.
2: Great being here, Nate. Really excited to do this.
1: Okay, so everyone wants to know when a Bitcoin ETF might be approved. And we will touch on that later. But this story does have some other unique angles to it that we haven't covered before. And I'll start by saying it's not often fund companies have an opportunity to launch a product that's almost guaranteed to be a home run, right? Normally, there's a lot of uncertainty over whether investors want a particular ETF. That's simply not the case here. Now, we can come back and talk about competition in a moment, because I I feel like the SEC delaying Bitcoin ETF approval, Obviously, that's resulted in a lot more firms getting involved. So a Bitcoin ETF will likely be a home run for some firms, uh, certainly not all. But to begin, do you want to talk about fund companies salivating over a Bitcoin ETF? I mean, there's a reason why they're they're lining up to launch these.
2: Yeah, Nate, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I think a Bitcoin ETF, that's something that is as close to a home run as you can get in the ETF industry. You can even throw an Ether ETF in there as well, given the huge move higher we've seen in Ether prices recently and the extraordinary demand uh, for the grayscale Ethereum trust, uh, ETHE. Last I checked, ETHE had something like $10 billion in assets under management. And the grayscale Bitcoin trust, which you mentioned also, GBTC, that had $38 billion in assets. These are extremely, extremely impressive numbers. And it really speaks to why a Bitcoin or an three ETF would be a blockbuster. There's just billions of dollars in these what are quasi closed end funds and the money would much rather be in an ETF if it could be. But there just hasn't been one available here in the U.S. So investors have been left with GBTC, which is um, unfortunately it's an imperfect product, but in a way it gets the job done. I mean, we know it doesn't trade on an exchange and it doesn't have a seamless creation and redemption mechanism like you see with an ETF. And therefore, you often see a lot of big discounts and big premiums in this in this product. But even with all those flaws, this thing has $38 billion. So that tells you everything you need to know about how much demand there is um, and how much demand there would be uh, for a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, Another way to look at the demand, Nate, um, is through the fee lens. I mean, GBTC charges 2% per year and ETHE charges 2.5%. These would be considered very high fees ordinarily, but investors simply haven't cared. In fact, they really haven't cared. They're willing to pay even more than those fees. They've been paying premiums to NAV for GBTC for much of its existence. I mean, that changed recently, but if you look back a year ago, people were paying 40% above NAV for GBTC. So that tells you how much demand there is for this product.
1: Well, that's what I was gonna say. You wrote an excellent piece uh, that that was published this morning and you had a stat in there for Grayscale that between GBTC and ETHE, those two products alone are bringing in nearly a billion dollars in annual revenue, implied a- annual revenue, which is equal to the revenue that Vanguard brings in from their 82 ETFs. I mean, it's just remarkable. And to your point, we know how, how tough the ETF space, I keep, say this every week, it's the Terror Dome, as Eric Balchunas from Bloomberg likes to call it. <laughs> but um, if issuers see a place where maybe they can make a little more revenue – uh, they're going to gravitate to that. And certainly Bitcoin ETF is one of those places. And as we sit here today, there are what currently eight Bitcoin ETF filings in the U.S. Uh, four of those are in the formal review process with the SEC where the clock is ticking on those. And we can talk more about that later. But, um, you know, that's why they're lining up is, is there is this potential for mm-hmm. revenue. Um, l- let's talk a little bit more about Grayscale. So they did come out a few weeks ago and publicly committed to converting the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into an ETF. And l- let me read some of these comments from the, uh, the the blog post they put out. They said, quote, first and foremost, we wish to make clear we are 100% committed to converting GBTC into an ETF. They also said, Uh, Quote, we remain committed to converting GBTC into an ETF, although the timing will be driven by the regulatory environment, uh, which makes sense. The question I have for you is, why do that if you're grayscale? Because you have these... Uh, $36 billion in GBTC that's essentially trapped in that product. If Grayscale wanted to, they could keep milking that 2% annual fee, keep collecting all that revenue we we talked about, and go retire on an island or something. (laughs) What's the incentive to convert?
2: I think they're going to do it just for reputational reasons. And because it's the right thing to do for investors, yes, from a purely monetary perspective, they lose out on fees by converting to an ETF but the reputation hit they'd take if they didn't convert, I think, would be severe. And if they play their cards right, they could be really well positioned, even if GBTC converts into an ETF. Because let's walk through what could happen in each scenario. Say uh, GBTC didn't convert, and you, you then have actual U.S.-listed Bitcoin ETFs start competing against it. Everyone is going to gravitate towards the ETFs. It's a better structure they're going to be trading close to NAV and all of that. So in that scenario, GBTC would be able to hold on to its assets uh, because there's no redemption mechanism, but you'd start to see its discount to NAV widen and widen and widen, just like you see with a lot of closed-end funds. That's going to look really bad, and it would be a really disappointing outcome for long-term investors in that product. On the other hand, if GBTC converts and it's able to be among the first batch of Bitcoin ETFs, it instantly has a huge advantage. It has the liquidity. Its fee could even be set a bit higher than everyone else, and it could still pull in a ton of revenue, similar to the case of something like GLD. And in that scenario, GBT's assets could continue growing, even with the added competition. And that's in contrast to the case where they didn't convert. In that case, the asset base would likely stagnate stagnate. I mean, they could hold existing assets hostage, but there probably wouldn't be any growth.
1: No, I think I agree with that assessment. I mean, to me, from Grayscale's perspective, it's about playing the long game, because I do feel like Grayscale, they have a leading and trusted brand in crypto, They're, they're perceived as a thought leader in this space. And they can leverage that for a long time and really build a leading crypto asset manager if they if they take the right path. And, you know, consumers are smart. I, I think that they can see through if a business is just in it for a money grab. Now, you know, that said, Grayscale does have this lucrative annuity paying out in GBTC. And we know sometimes businesses don't always do the right thing. But I, I think you're right. I expect them to to head down the right path longer term. And interestingly, as you and I talked about a, a couple of weeks ago, Grayscale recently announced an equity ownership stake in ETF issuer ClearShares, which that coincided with ClearShares changing the ticker symbol on their intermediate fixed income ETF from PIFI to BTC. Of course, the ticker BTC has really become the de facto ticker symbol for Bitcoin itself. So, you know, it looks like they have some things in the works there. I'll be interested to see how that plays out with the uh, the ticker symbol. Um, now, all that said, one thing I, I do want to mention, Samit, is, you know, we're talking about all, all the revenue uh, Grayscale is making. And, and I sent out a tweet with your staff this morning, and immediately there was negative comments replying to the tweet, talking about how, you know, Grayscale is, is just, you know, taking money from unsuspecting investors. I think we need to mention that, you know, what's happened here is people have have sort of conflated Grayscale and GBTC with the SEC failing to approve a Bitcoin ETF. Or I I guess better said, Grayscale hasn't tried to do something nefarious here, right? I mean, mean the product structure and the fee, you, you talked about the premiums and discounts. That's all out in the open. This isn't something that's under the, under the table. And I actually covered this stuff on the podcast with uh, Grayscale CEO Michael Sonnenschein. He, he talked about all this stuff. He didn't shy away from it. My point is GBTC exists and has nearly $40 billion in it because the SEC hasn't approved a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, I, I just feel like that shouldn't get lost and take away from what Grayscale has done. Do, do, you, do you agree with that?
2: I do agree with that, Nate. And I don't think Grayscale or or GBTC deserve a bad rap. You have to remember that GBTC has been around for a very long time. The first private placement was sometime in 2013, and it started being publicly quoted on the OTCQX in May 2015. And a lot of people didn't even know about Bitcoin back then. And if they did, they might have been wary about it after Uh, You saw a number of high-profile hacks that took place around that time. Um, Mt. Gox, the largest crypto exchange in 2014, was completely crippled due to a hack. Uh, So you couldn't blame investors for not wanting to wade into um, crypto-native platforms, even ones that ended up being secure and successful like Coinbase. So in that context, GBTC, uh, which you could buy in a more familiar way through your traditional brokerage account, That was something truly valuable. Uh, You could have bought this thing in May 2015 when Bitcoin was trading around $240. And if you bought in those early days, you'd be up 100 to 150 times on your money today, even after buying at a modest premium to NAV. And it's not just the people who bought back then. Most investors who have ever bought GBTC are up. This is a product that's uh, up 50% year to date, 370% over the past year, and I think 5,600% over the past five years. So is it a perfect product? Absolutely not. But it's been well worth the 2% price tag for anyone who didn't have another way to access Bitcoin or wasn't comfortable accessing Bitcoin in another way.
1: And I think your last point is really the the key one. The fact is not everyone is comfortable setting up a digital wallet or or going to a crypto exchange. And GBTC has served a a purpose. And again, I'll just come back to the fact that, uh, like Michael Sonenshine, the CEO of Grayscale, he's been completely transparent with with what this product is and, and how it works. It's not like, again, something is going on behind the scenes that investors aren't aware of, or they may not be aware of. But if they're not, it's probably from a lack of due diligence on their own part. It's not because Grayscale has tried to hide something. Um, I just a few minutes left. I alluded to this earlier, with all of the competition lining up for a US Bitcoin ETF. I think that the strategy that issuers take on fees is going to be fascinating to watch. So I've said before, obviously, a Bitcoin ETF is a commodity product. And so if you have a commodity product, how do you differentiate? Well, fees and marketing, And I did think it was noteworthy that Grayscale said when GBTC does convert to an ETF, the uh, management fee will be reduced accordingly. Now, they didn't say what that would be, but they did say they would reduce the fee from that current 2%. Any thoughts on how the fee war might play out once Bitcoin ETFs are approved?
2: I think it's going to be a pretty intense fee war right off the bat. Because even if fees haven't really played a big part in uh, Bitcoin returns historically, given how enormous the gains in the underlying asset have been, at some point they're going to matter. And investors are always going to gravitate towards the lower fee, all else equal. And you really only have to look towards the Canadian Bitcoin ETFs that came to market a few months ago to see where this could go. Uh, The purpose Bitcoin ETF, that was the first one out the door over there, Uh, And they calculate things a little differently in Canada, but its fee was somewhere between 1% and 1.5%. Then you look at the CI Galaxy Bitcoin ETF, which came uh, to market two and a half months after the first one, uh, and it's only charging 0.4% to 0.95%, something between that. So I'd expect a similar, if not more aggressive dynamic here in the U.S., just given how much money is at stake.
1: Well, even you look at some of these trusts that are trading uh, over the counter. So the Osprey Bitcoin Trust, who, who I mentioned, their founder, Gray King, is joining me a bit later. That currently charges 0.49%. And I, I wonder if maybe that sets the ceiling for Bitcoin ETF prices here in the U.S. The whole thing's going to be fascinating. I think another sort of interesting point here is that Bitcoin has been on an unbelievable run. And so when you have the returns that Bitcoin has had, how much do investors really care about fees? Probably not a whole lot. But if that turns, maybe investors are going to pay more attention to fees as well. So I, the whole fee thing is going to be fascinating. I also mentioned marketing. I think the marketing around these products is going to be critical. Uh, I expect some of these issuers to partner up with with known brands in the space to help market the products. It's just going to be interesting to watch. me um, just a minute left. Before I let you go, I mentioned there are currently eight Bitcoin ETF filings. What do you think happens in terms of approval? And do you want to offer any sort of time frame?
2: Yeah, Nate. So we know that a few of these uh, filings, they're on the clock with the SEC. The SEC has to respond in so-and-so amount of time. But I don't think um, they're going to make a decision imminently. I think they're going to punt at least a few more times. Um, I don't think the SEC is going to be constrained by some arbitrary time frame. They're going to do it after analyzing all the evidence, and that could take some time. I mean, we've just entered the Gary Gensler era. Most people are saying he'll probably move in favor of a Bitcoin ETF at some point, given he's so familiar with crypto in general. That sounds plausible to me. But um, unfortunately, I don't have the exact answers. I don't think anybody outside the SEC does. But like everyone else, I'm curious, when does approval happen? And if it does happen, which ETF or ETFs, if there's multiple, get approval first? Um, so it's going to be exciting to see how this goes. And I just hope the process is as fair as possible and investors end up with some great products.
1: Well, Samit, always appreciate the time. Uh, to listeners, go check out Samit's piece on ETF.com today on the the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Fantastic piece. Samit, thank you for joining me thanks Nick. etf.com to so roy My next guest is Hector McNeil, co-CEO of Han ETF, who was the first white label ETF issuer over in Europe. They currently have 14 ETFs, over two and a half billion dollars on their platform, including a Bitcoin exchange traded commodity. My dream, that alone has well over a billion dollars in it. And Hector is a longtime ETF industry veteran, truly a a pioneer in ETFs and not just European ETFs. Uh, He's been involved since the earliest days in the space. And he's now on the line with me from London. Hector, a pleasure connecting. Thanks for taking the time.
3: No problem. Good to be here and uh, hope it's not too early over there.
1: <laughs> well well, Hector, so you were a founder and owner of ETF Securities back in the mid-2000s. This was really the first ETF startup in, in Europe. and you, you helped grow that from literally scratch to over 25 billion dollars in assets and ended up being mostly acquired by Wisdom Tree. You then went on to found Boost ETP, which actually ended up becoming Wisdom Tree Europe. And then, of course, you founded Han ETF in, in 2017. To, to begin with, how did you first get involved with ETFs, even prior to ETF securities?
3: Yeah, so um, I've had a pretty varied career in uh, financial services. And, uh, you know, what I always liked was being at the sort of uh, cutting edge of. Uh, you know, financial and instruments and uh, trading, etc. So I've had a bit of a background around exchanges, you know, and uh, various other uh, uh, ventures. And uh, one of the most exciting ones was uh, I joined uh, Susquehanna, uh, you know, who's a pretty big name, obviously, over in the U.S. Uh, for uh, options market making and ETF market making. And I got involved in their business, so sort in of the late 90s, uh, start of 2000, uh, and went there to help them set up a uh, sort of customer-facing business in uh, Europe. And this sort of coincided with the really early days of the uh, ETF market. Uh, in fact, I think uh, iShares at the time had uh, less than ten products and five staff in uh, in Europe. And I think the total assets under management at the time globally was about $200 billion and, uh, thirty billion in Europe. And uh, I, went, I was a subscriber for four and a half years, and uh, that sort of coincided with the with the growth in the market. And we sort of pioneered the uh, the sort of growth ETF market there because we signed the first commercial market making deal where we could guarantee the bid uh, bit off of spreads and uh, the uh, size on exchange and we did that first off with uh, with iShares and it sort of you know completely revolutionized the market because in europe you've got fragmented liquidity across all different exchanges so it's very difficult to get a natural tight bit off a of spread and we took something like the FTSE 100 and reduced it from 50 bits to 10 bits overnight so uh, so that's where i got involved in the uh, in the roller coaster that is uh, is the ETF market, uh, yeah. So that's the sort of first bits of it, really.
1: And how did you end up getting involved with ETF securities?
3: Yeah, funny enough, I was. I was. Uh, you're probably aware that uh, ETF Securities invented the first gold ETF uh, in Australia way before GLD or any other product came on the scene. IAU or whatever. They created the first one in Australia, uh, and it was uh, Graham Tuckwell, uh, who's the founder of ETF Securities and majority uh, owner there. And uh, I was hounding Graham to be this sort of market maker when I was at Saskatchewan to get them to do a deal like I did at uh, iShares. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, he, he never relented, but uh, he called me, uh, uh, you know, some pretty uh, uh, flowery language uh, <laughs> and thanked me for my persistence and, uh, and offered me a job, actually. So uh, he said to me, look, uh, you know, I've got uh, Nick Biankowski who's my uh, current partner now, and he's the end in hand. Uh, he was already there, and uh, I was the third guy in. And uh, Graham just said to me, Look, you know, I'm trying to build out this business. Uh, you know, we've invented gold ETFs, it's going to be a huge thing. Didn't see me at the time because gold was only $250 an ounce at the time. But, uh, and he said, I want, you know, I want to build this business. And uh, I came in there, I was a 10% owner. Nick was also a 10% owner. So uh, we were co managing partners, you know, and uh, we never we never thought it would be the, uh, the success story it was, really. So, uh, so that's how I went from. Uh, Suss today the other thing is Sussqui was based in Dublin and I was a I'm a UK uh, an English guy so uh, a young family I wanted to come back to the UK and it just seemed like a massive massive opportunity and uh, the rest is history really
1: Hector I gave a stat at the top of the podcast uh, w- w- which absolutely floored me when I first saw it um, I, I show that you've been involved in in helping to create over 500 exchange traded products across multiple countries i mean this includes listings in europe us japan australia uh, hong kong i'm curious do you have a favorite product or two from over the years like like an etf that you are particularly fond of
3: yeah no it's uh i you know it, it is it is incredible when you look back at it you know i think it's 500 i think it's all of 550 now
2: it's amazing just uh, etfs
3: 23 23 listings globally you know, and about forty billion of assets. So, uh, so it's been a been a really uh, really good ride. But uh, probably uh, probably the the uh, my favourite is is uh, is uh, the first oil uh, ETP, which was uh, oil B, uh which was Brent oil, and we did a, we did a WTI one pretty quickly after that because because that was a sort of after gold that was the next big one, right? And, th- and we got that out probably two years before USO came to market or UNG in the US, you know. So. Uh, so that was probably that, and, and probably my favourite listing was actually in in Japan. Uh, what was quite what was quite bizarre about that is uh, we we did a we did an opening ceremony in uh, on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and uh, and I had to speak for five minutes in Japanese. So they actually wrote everything phonetically out for me, and uh, with my uh, northern accent from the from the UK, uh, speaking to uh, live Japanese TV, you know about this. Uh, these uh, brand new uh, ETFs coming to market—that's that's probably my favorite by, by far. I think.
1: Given that you've been involved with ETF since the early two thousands, when did you first realize their larger potential? And and I guess along with that, I mean, are you surprised at how big the ETF market has become today? Uh, yeah, I mean, I
3: think I, if you asked me, you know, when it was thirty billion in Europe, would it become one and a half trillion and you know eight trillion globally? I probably would have probably would have laughed, but. But I've always classed myself, uh, like like yourself, I think we discussed this the other day, as an ETF boonie, you know, as a, as a sort of, it's almost a bit of a cult. Um, you know, and, uh, and I don't think, uh, you know, uh, we would have expected it to be, you know, as, as diverse and as, as, as uh, wide, wide-reaching wide as it is. And and I think the interesting thing for me is that, uh, you know, the whole ecosystem has, has developed along really nicely, whether that's the market-making side of it, whether it's the index side of it, you know, I mean, I remember when uh, we first approached MSCI for, for an index license uh, mid-2000s, and uh, they basically said to us, look, you've got to pay $10 million before you can even uh, uh, have an index, you know. And, uh, and now you can go to someone like Selective and they can give you an index for 10 grand, right? You know, so, uh, so that world, you know, I never thought that would have uh, democratized so quickly and so, uh, so broad spread. Uh, but it's also quite, still quite a small industry in a way uh, because you, when you look at it, uh, you know, if you go something like the uh, Inside ETFs event, you know, uh, that's held pretty much every year in Miami, obviously not with COVID, but uh, until recent times, a lot of the same old faces are still kicking around, right, you know, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of new faces in it as well, but it's but it's still got a nice core and a backbone to it really, which I think is being built on and, uh, you know, I think will still be built on from here, so I think it's got it's got the uh, you know the uh, the benefits of of being being at scale, but actually a lot of the DNA is still there, which is which is really exciting for me. All
1: right, so I want to talk about this Bitcoin product, but first let's talk Han ETF overall. So you're a full service white label ETF issuer. Essentially, you've built a platform that allows for ETF ideas to come to market quickly and, and cost effectively. And as I look at the current ETF offerings under Han. They include exposure to gold, which is held at the Royal Mint, by the way. Cannabis, cloud technology, online retail, healthcare, emerging markets, Bitcoin, which I mentioned. Um, how have you attempted to position the lineup here? Maybe explain the business model in a bit more detail.
3: Yeah, no problem. I mean, I think the um, you know the realization Nick and I had when we were looking at what to do after the Wisdom Tree uh, acquisition is is we sort of felt well. So the next wave of uh, ETF issuers were going to be guys who've got great content or brands or or whatever, but don't necessarily want to invest in all the spares and shovels you need to, uh, you know, to issue and manage and uh, grow ETFs. Uh, You know, we thought there was a good alignment in terms of us creating that sort of scale through aggregation and, uh, you know, bringing people with great content and uh, and IP, uh, almost to the point where we felt we could be the first sort of multi-manager, ETF platform in the world, you know, and uh, if you look across the whole chemical table of uh, of ETF uh, products, you know, whether that's equities, bonds, you know, uh, alternatives, commodities, you know, across the active, thematic, smart beta, niche spaces, we felt we could own that in Europe, uh, and we felt that there wasn't much need for the uh, for the new new uh, guys coming to the market. You know, to want to, uh, you know, to put all those, uh, uh, you know, infrastructure in play. In our view, the IPs in the content, not in the, uh, not in the infrastructure. So we felt that, uh, you know, uh, we saw what happened in the U.S. with white labelers, but we also felt that Europe's a little bit more complex than the U.S. You know, it's one market, it's double the size of the U.S. in terms of population, similar wealth demographic, and we just think we're sort of three to five years behind. The U.S. in terms of growth, uh, you know, actually a U.S. and maybe could even surpass it given the fact that the population is bigger. Uh, so we felt in some ways, you know, Europe's where the growth is. You know, it, you, know you can say how Europe can grow four, five, six-fold in the next sort of uh, five years, uh, you know, to get to similar assets to where the U.S. is today, but you don't really think the U.S. is going to grow five or six-fold. It's probably going to grow double or maybe treble, but uh, Europe's probably going to accelerate more. So we felt that, um, you know, we could be that sort of uh, offering. So, you know, a bit, we're a bit different than the U.S. Uh, uh, white laborers because they tend to only do one small part of the process in terms of issuing the product. You know, whereas we've got our own management company, we've got our own equipment of trust, which is called NYCAV in Europe, we have our own sales force uh, distribution, uh, we have our own digital marketing uh, we also do our own ops. We do our own capital markets. Uh, I think we've got something like 25 authorized participants of market makers on the platform. We're onboarded on about 60 wealth management and private banking platforms across Europe. And every new fund gets that from day one. So we can uh, issue a fund. We get out in 10 weeks, uh, you know, and we can uh, have it to market then. And we've got over 250 years of uh, European ETF experience across the business so that's where we think it's really powerful from that, that perspective is having that ability to get a fund out in 10 weeks and, uh, you know, be able to uh, uh, hit all that, what I call plumbing and infrastructure uh, at day one. And then what's really exciting is, as you mentioned, someone like the Royal Mint, you know, who's actually, funny enough, Britain's oldest company, you know, it was set up 1100 years ago by Alfred the Great in 886. You know, Isaac Newton was the CEO there for 20 years, you know, and it, it exports 6 billion coins a year to 60 countries around the world. Now... I love ETFs with stories, you know. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, don't want to be the uh, the next S and P guy, two basis points cheaper than the last guy, you know. I, I love stories, so being able to tell somebody I'm working with Britain's oldest company, the tenth oldest in the world, and Isaac Newton's the CEO there for uh, for 20 years is is just fantastic for me. Uh, so that's really what we, uh, what where we put the, uh, you know, the uh, the flag in the uh, in the top of the hill, really. That's what we're trying to do.
1: Okay, so when you talk about stories, let's talk more about this Bitcoin exchange-traded product. Uh, Listeners know I'm slightly obsessed (laughs) with this topic. Uh, So you offer the Bitcoin exchange-traded crypto ETF, ticker BTCE. This is listed in Germany and Switzerland. The question I have for you is, why do you think European regulators have been more comfortable with this product compared to their uh, U.S. counterpart? Yeah,
3: well, I think it's... It's, it's like everything, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, governments make decisions at different times and policy comes down from a high and then it gets acted upon. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, not, not everywhere in Europe is, is as open uh, as Germany and Switzerland, for example. So uh, we still can't list this in Italy or, uh, or make it available to retail in the UK. But what's been really quite cool is uh, around uh, the early part of last year, the German government Actually, made a very strategic decision to make uh, uh, crypto's official financial instruments. So they effectively said, "Right, we're going to regulate this space. It's not going away. We want to be at the forefront of it." And then the regulator BaFin, who is the equivalent of the SEC, you know, were directed to uh, to facilitate this. Uh, so we were, uh, you know, very fortuitous uh, to have a filing in at BaFin. Uh, in fact, we're the only German uh, uh, entity uh, currently. And we were able to get the first uh, product out on the Deutsche Börse. And the Deutsche Börse is the biggest um, uh, market in Europe uh, for ETS. You know, so to get the first product uh, on the biggest exchange, uh, you know, was fantastic. And, and this was the first time in the world that anybody could trade crypto central counterparty on a regulated exchange through regulated brokers. You know, so if you're going to be putting fifty million 50 to $100 million dollars tickets into, into a product... You know, you, want, you worry about who the counterparty is on the other side of that trade. So being able to have Eurex, which is the Deutsche Börse's uh, central counterparty, is the uh, CCP, was enormous for this product. And uh, even though it wasn't first to market in Europe fully because it was a Swedish product and a, and a Swiss product before us, being on Germany meant that, you know, we've taken uh, over 41% of all the flows uh, across eight Bitcoin ETFs uh, since we launched it in, uh, in June last year. And it peaked at 1.6 billion of assets. And uh, just in the first three months of this year, it's taken nearly 500 million uh, of assets, which is which is incredible. And and pretty much it's been the most traded ETF or ETP, you know, ahead of things like the S&P 500 or the DAX or the Eurostox 50 or gold on the Deutsche Börse for the last three months. I think it's traded something like $2.5 billion of assets, uh, of, of volume, over the last uh, three months. So... Uh, so it's 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 a fantastic product. Actually, when you look at its tracking as well, you know it doesn't trade at a premium anywhere near like uh, the CME futures or uh, or Grayscale has all, over its time, you know. So it tracks almost perfectly the uh, the Bitcoin price, which has made it really really accessible to you know professional investors down to retail. So it's been really exciting products, and you're probably aware we've recently just done Litecoin. And uh, Ethereum as well. So, uh, so we're, we're planning to have a whole suite of these products over uh, over the next six months.
1: The Ethereum and Litecoin products; do those just trade in uh, Germany. Is that right?
3: Yeah, we're we're, we're going to stick them into Switzerland as well, but uh, currently they're just in Germany. Yeah. So, I mean, Ethereum's already seventy-five million of assets, and that's only been out for less than a month. Uh, so, uh, it's not quite the uh, the blockbuster that uh, Bitcoin is, but it's still <laughs> really interesting. Obviously, the price the price uh, interest over the last few days has been. Uh, been pretty tremendous as well so you know we're really excited by the whole crypto sector really having that combination of real assets thematic uh, etfs and cryptos means that uh, you know when we talk to a gatekeeper and a, and a wealth manager or a private bank and they say why should i onboard you know uh, another etf firm i've got 20 already we can say well we're different we're not like the rest." And, our product offering really, uh, really highlights that for sure.
1: Yeah, and just to be clear, these are all structured as exchange-traded uh, commodities. They're, they're basically "quote unquote" physically backed by the coins, right? It's a very similar structure to, like, a physical gold ETC, correct?
3: Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, so uh, even to the point where we will not issue any of the uh, any of the products until we actually put the cryptos in cold storage which you've hit the nail on the head with, uh, with the physical metal products. So, uh, so the equivalent of that is you, know, you don't issue the ETF, gold ETF until the, uh, the metal is allocated. So in no way can it be uh, owned by anybody else but the, uh, the holders of the, uh, of the ETF or ETP. So, yeah, that's absolutely critical. And one of the great things as well with uh, BTCE, which I think is unique to it, uh, holders can actually receive back Uh, uh, the cryptos if they want from a physical perspective so they can actually come direct to the vehicle and actually uh, request to get physical from the other side. And that really is, you know, not just having the APs and market makers being able to do that, having uh, the end client be able to do it really keeps the price incredibly tight and incredibly key, which we think is really important.
1: All right, Hector, just a, a couple of minutes left here before I let you go. I, I thought, given your deep history and expertise in ETFs and um, just everything that you've accomplished over the years, I'd love for you to peer into the future a bit for us and, and sort of get out your crystal ball. What does what the next, I don't know, five, 10, 20 years look like? for ETFs. And if you want to approach this just from the European perspective, that's fine. If you want to talk overall, you mentioned the European market maybe being three to five years behind the US and growth, but a lot of opportunity there. But, but but what do you see as the future of ETFs?
3: Yeah, well, I think it's it's uh, I, I, I think whether it's five or 10 years, I think what you're going to find is all new funds uh, that have got true daily liquidity. Uh, so not, you know, mutual funds that pretend to have their liquidity but uh, but don't i think will be done in the etf format so i think the only things that will be left in pure mutual fund status will be sort of physical property or private equity i think everything else will end up in the uh, in the etf wrapper both in europe and in uh, in the us i mean europe is, is behind uh, the us but what tends to happen is we do get the uh you know the uh, the wave effects coming over to uh, to europe and in some ways as you mentioned with the cryptos, we lead the charge, or we did with gold ETFs back in the day, right? So, uh, so it can come can come both ways. Uh, and I do think that uh, what you'll find is as well any meaningful uh, ETF uh, product or, or issuer with a global brand will also have to have 40 act and uh, and uh, USITs to provide a global audience. So I think uh, you know USITs has done pretty well in Latin America and uh, Asia. Uh, you know, uh, the 40 acts has done pretty pretty well everywhere else, uh, and obviously usits is in Europe. But I do think if you have a if you have IP and content, and you really feel that uh, you know you want to make sure that that's got a global audience, you know, you really do need to have both Eusis and uh, and 40 acts. So I think that's going to be absolutely uh, absolutely critical from uh, from that perspective. Um, and then I think we you know we we, we could find that, uh, you know, uh, we, we get more uh, sort of ecosystem-type products, whether they're portfolio ETFs, you know, ETF of ETFs type structure. So you sort of cut the middleman out in terms of wealth manager or, or the private bank. You know, I think you could find more, uh, more uh, uh, solutions uh, going out there. You know, we've seen it, obviously, with model portfolios being very attractive, very interesting, more so in the U.S. than Europe. That hasn't really gravitated here yet, but it will do. But I think you may find there will be more sort of uh, portfolio ETFs coming to market that can fill that gap as well, and provide solutions, so not just building blocks, but solutions as well. So that's where I see it, see it coming. And uh, you know, uh, and I think you might find even more physical assets as well coming in the ETF uh, format. You know, like carbon or or more base metals or, uh, or or physical metals from that from that sort of perspective. So. Basically, anything that's got some some form of uh, uh, liquidity and price discovery, uh, you know, I think you'll find uh, gravitating to the uh, to the ETF wrapper uh, to the point where uh, you know I think the uh, there, there won't even be discussion with uh, product development departments on whether it should be a mutual fund or or an ETF. I think the ETF will just win the day.
1: Well, Hector, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, just an absolute pleasure connecting. Congratulations on all the success with uh, Han ETF. And I I certainly look forward to visiting again. Thank you.
3: Thanks very much. Thanks
1: for having me. That was Hector McNeil, co-CEO of Han ETF. I'm now joined by Greg King, founder and CEO of Osprey Funds. He's also founder and CEO of RecShares, who's an ETF issuer, currently offering 14 products, about $2.5 billion invested. Those are under the Micro Sectors brand. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few years.
0: Yeah, it's been a little while. Great to be here.
1: Well, let's jump right in. So Osprey offers what is currently the lowest cost Bitcoin fund on the market, the Osprey Bitcoin Trust. Uh, This trades in the secondary market under the ticker symbol OBTC. The management fee is 49 basis points. I guess to begin, obviously, you have a long track record in ETFs with rec shares, of course, velocity shares before that. Why did you start Osprey and launch this Bitcoin Trust?
0: yeah I guess if you look at if you look at my background, so I've been involved in exchange traded products since um, two thousand and four, so we're seventeen years I'm feeling old. Um, well, I'm not feeling old, I'm sounding old, but <laughs> I guess it's been seventeen years. Um, and I guess what interests me is is sort of the um, the cutting edge of of finance and investing. So my background and training was in derivatives across all asset classes with Barclays in London. Um, And I I, I think because of that, I've always been interested in, in what's new, what's next in the world of, of investing. Uh, I'm still a believer in, in in kind of, um, you know, I guess having a, a a balanced portfolio and, you know, everyone saving for retirement needs to have large allocations to equities and, um, you know, fixed income and so on. But, Around the edges, I think, um, is where I like to specialize, and that's been consistent. So if, if you kind of go under that theory, the Osprey thing makes a lot of sense. Um, the way it happened is we got interested. Well, I got interested in crypto in 2013, bought a couple of Bitcoin and just started watching the space, but didn't think it would have anything to do with my day job um, until a few years later, well, when we started looking at uh, potentially doing a Bitcoin ETF with Rex. Uh, the Osprey brand was simply to put a, a, a different brand name on it because, as you mentioned, for Rex and Microsectors, um, those are more traditional products. So with Osprey, we just wanted to delineate that these are our crypto products. And, in fact, we just recently spun Osprey off as its own uh, standalone company at this point since um, there's just so much um, momentum there. We're really building out that business.
1: And to be clear on this Bitcoin trust, so this tracks the CMBI Bitcoin index, investors can subscribe uh, via dollars or Bitcoin. Now to be clear, this is for accredited investors. I think there's a $25,000 minimum. Uh, There's a 12 month lockup period, though, I I believe I saw that you're you intend to apply to the SEC for a reduction of that period to six months. And then, you know, I guess the key point here is this does trade over the counter. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about that?
0: Sure. The uh, regime that we live under in the U.S., as far as crypto-related exchange-traded products at the moment, um, still does not allow for a, let's just call it a regular ETF to be done. I'm sure your uh, listeners are very aware, if they're following the space, that people have been trying for a a Bitcoin ETF since the Winklevoss twins filed in 2013, if you can believe that. So it's been kind of eight years that people are looking at this. And and nothing yet. So what's developed is a, uh, an alternative type of structure. Um, it's, it's not quite an ETF, but it is a, a trust that holds assets that trades on the secondary market. Um, but it has certain limitations. And one of them is that we're not actually allowed to offer it publicly. We have to only offer to accredited investors and above. Um, and those are the folks that, are, that can purchase shares direct from Osprey at NAV. Um, they do have to hold them uh, for a year. That is possible to reduce to six months, as you mentioned, and we are in the process of applying for that. Um, but there is a holding period required. Once they trade in the secondary market under the ticker symbol, uh, which, as you mentioned, is OBTC, anyone who has access to, to the OTC-traded uh, stocks in the U.S. can, can go ahead and, and buy and sell those shares. Now, uh, the trick there is got to watch out for secondary market pricing, because there can be premiums or discounts, similar to like a closed end fund. So um, investors need to make sure that they are they just know what they're doing. And they're aware of those dynamics in the secondary market.
1: Greg, I want to talk more about prospective Bitcoin ETFs in the US. And, and by the way, I, I do want to note, so you and I did not have a chance to visit prior to this call. And so because of that, I'm going to award you um, several get-out-of-jail-free cards in advance. I'm just not sure what you're comfortable discussing in this forum, so I'll fire these questions at you. You can always use the card. Uh, I I know our listeners certainly appreciate the regulatory landscape you have to deal with. It's obviously a highly competitive landscape, and so with all of that said, let me start with something that I, I am pretty sure you can answer, which is... What has been your impression of the way the SEC has handled Bitcoin ETF so far? We are, as you mentioned, now about what eight years since the first Bitcoin ETF filing. Are you surprised that one of these hasn't been approved yet?
0: Well, yes and no. So in 2017, really, is when we put in our filings. And uh, at, at that point, if you had told me it's going to be another four years and still nothing, I would have been shocked. Uh, right. And, and obviously, had I known that, we wouldn't have put in any filings and, and you know, kind of spent that energy. But uh, but now at this point, I'm, you know, not surprised um, because what emerged out of that run up in 2017 and a number of people filing was ultimately a letter that was sent to the industry um, by the SEC that enumerated their concerns around a Bitcoin ETF. And if you look at that letter, um, a lot of those concerns have been mitigated through the development of the ecosystem, greater liquidity, uh, you know, a lot more um, uh, depth to markets and things like that. But there are still concerns out there that um, probably the SEC uh, is not quite comfortable with. So um, I guess if you, know, if you caught me four years ago, yeah, I'd be surprised it took this long. But now at this point, I'm, I'm not surprised anymore.
1: <laughs> can you elaborate on some of those concerns? I mean, is there anything in particular that you think the industry you know, still needs to, uh, you know, to accomplish in terms of jumping over the hurdle to get the SEC comfortable?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest bucket of concern that remains, I wouldn't say unaddressed, but it's, it's really just out of, out of people's control. There's, there's not much that can be done. Um, is a concern about manipulation. So with Bitcoin, a couple of things are true about Bitcoin that, uh, that haven't been true you know, about other um, commodities in the past. I suppose one of them is that it's really a 24-7 market. Um, and so things can happen over the weekend and large moves can be made. Uh, but more importantly, it's a international market. And the majority of trading volume... Happens outside the borders of the U.S. with no uh, or very little supervision from any U.S. Um, authorities, and so <clears throat> when uh, you know when there have been cases of overt manipulation in the past, and you know certainly there there could be groups trying to manipulate prices of things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. That's going to be a challenge for the regulators. Now, the argument to that is. You know, the same goes with oil. Uh, the same goes with gold. I mean, we, we're not sure how that, that all works behind the scenes. Um, if you ask me to imagine or, or ask, answer the question, are there people out there kind of looking to influence the price of oil or gold in different ways? Sure, I think there there probably are. And so you have Commissioner Hester Pierce, for example, at the SEC, that has pointed that out and said, you know, it's not the SEC's role to really um, – you know, stand in the way of something like this that they should let the market decide. but I do personally believe that the manipulation concern is probably their biggest uh, hang up at this point,
1: well, and you bring up a good point for instance, with the oil products, because when I think about some of the ETPs that even you have been personally involved with VIX products, certainly commodities, leveraged ETNs, it does seem a bit incongruent to me that the SEC won't approve a Bitcoin ETF, yet they've allowed some of these other products to exist, which, by the way, those products all do exactly what they're supposed to do. Uh, it, it just seems that if those are going to be offered to the investing public, certainly a Bitcoin ETF should as well. Um let me ask you this, and, and here's where those uh, get-out-of-jail-free cards may come in handy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. l- let, let's say that you feel like the SEC is getting more comfortable. Can we expect a Bitcoin ETF filing from Osprey at, at some point? Well, um, so
0: what we have, we have our, our fund uh, trading in the market. Uh, we do intend to pursue that. Uh, so I, I can't uh, make any promises to when that'll happen, but we are. Uh, investigating that and, and working behind the scenes uh, with our legal team. Um, so I think it's safe to say that, yes, at some point you could see that from us.
1: Well, and I, I guess I'll, I'll push you a little bit further here. I know a competitor of yours has publicly indicated that they're 100 percent committed to converting their Bitcoin trust, which is structured similar to yours, into an ETF. I, is that a path that you would potentially consider?
0: Um, yes, that would be the, the path that makes the most sense uh, for us would be if if we do file something to uh, convert the trust that exists into an ETF rather than to start a separate one from scratch, if that's what
1: you're asking. Yeah, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, Any thoughts on how the SEC should go about approving Bitcoin uh, ETFs? Like should it be first come first serve? Should there be some sort of blanket approval where if issuers meet all of the SEC's requirements, uh, you know, a bunch of these are approved at the same time? How do you think the SEC should go about this entire process?
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, companies that start with an O, they should focus on those first. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> no, I, I think, um, you know, how they should approve and how they will approve are probably two different things. It's probably more relevant to speak about how they will approve or how they might approve, and my belief there is that, you um, I don't think the SEC wants to play kingmaker. They probably realize that there are billions and probably tens of billions of potential assets under management that would flood into any new ETFs. Um, And so I would find it surprising if they were to uh, approve one random filer, because I think at this point there have been so many filers at so many different times um, that to to just be the person whose filing happens to be in that kind of maturation phase on the morning that the SEC decides, okay, today I think I'll approve a Bitcoin ETF. It just, to me, seems pretty unfair. Um, so I would imagine that they will start to telegraph their intentions and ultimately approve a batch at once, whether that's you know, 5 or 8 or 12. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I would imagine that a bunch of Bitcoin ETFs, if and when it happens, get approved at more or less the same time.
1: So I'm on record as saying that I think the SEC will approve a Bitcoin ETF this year. I have to tell you, after um, hearing your comments, I'm a little less optimistic. <laughs> but uh, it, it, yeah. b- best guess, when do you think the SEC finally approves these products?
0: Well, I was asked this before, and I, I put out a, a 50-50 in, in 2021 and 80-20 in 2022. That's, that's If I had to make odds, that's what I would say. I, I think it's... Um, well, maybe I should say uh, forty-nine fifty-one because I do think it's more likely um, that that it comes in, in twenty twenty-two. There's a chance this year. Um, I suppose it's. I need to revise that because I said that maybe a month ago. So more of the year has burned off the calendar. So maybe it's less of a chance this year. Here's the thing: if you think about how these things work, right? You have Gary Gensler coming in. He's brand new. This is a big problem. It's a. Bi- I wouldn't say problem, but it's a big issue with uh, significant ramifications and quite a body of opinions that have been put out there by the staff, um, you know, disqualification letters or whatever the technical term is, where they've essentially said, no, we're not approving you, and here's all the reasons why. Um, I really don't see him just coming in and and turning over the apple cart within just a few months of landing. Uh, That doesn't seem like a prudent thing to do, and people in his position are usually fairly prudent. So I think he's going to need, <clears throat> excuse me, need some warming up. Um, but I could see, I could see him warming up. I could see him coming in and wanting to actually um, make a difference in the crypto space, provide more clarity. Uh,
1: but I think it'll take a little while to do that. So
0: my, my bet is 2022 is our year, but, um, you know, I'm not holding my breath.
1: Well, I think the other wild card here, too, is it feels like there's a lot on the SEC's plate right now, whether you want to talk about the GameStop drama from earlier this year, Artegos, you you know, those sorts of things. And you wonder where this will fall on the priority list. I am a little bit more optimistic that we now have live uh, Bitcoin ETFs in Canada. Canada seems to lead the U.S. market in in ETF innovation by, I, I don't know, about six months. So I, I think that's a point of optimism, but um, you know I agree. I mean, Gensler's coming in, and, and he has a lot on his plate to, to sort out. So, um, Greg, before I let you go, I saw big news from Osprey last week. You launched your second fund, the Osprey Polkadot Trust. Uh, th- this also was for private placement. Explain Polkadot. What 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 is this?
0: Polkadot is a, a cryptocurrency. That the the token is called DOT. D O T. Um, I believe, you know, depending on what when you check, it's, it's the eighth or ninth largest crypto uh, currency in the world at the moment. And uh, we're just fascinated by it. I think that Polkadot could be a very, very big thing over time. What Polkadot is, has done, um, and it, by the way, Polkadot it was put together by uh, Dr. Gavin Wood. Gavin Wood was the chief technology officer of Ethereum. So he basically built Ethereum with Vitalik, uh, left because of some of the Uh, limitations with the Ethereum project and set up Polkadot several years ago, but it's just now sort of blossoming, if you will. But what Polkadot does, or is attempting to do, is tie all the blockchains together. So that's what the ecosystem has missed. Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, the two biggest ones, they don't really talk to each other. Um, But in the Polkadot ecosystem, you could have a situation where, uh, an Ethereum smart contract gets auto-executed, and a Bitcoin payment is sent across to the recipient. All automatically enabled by Polkadot. So it's a very ambitious project, but it has some amazing talent behind it, and uh, we're pretty excited about it. It's also a first-to-market product, um, so we're doubly excited about that.
1: And with the hope to someday have this trust trade over the counter, like the Bitcoin Trust, perhaps even an, an yeah. ETF at some point.
0: Yeah, maybe at some <laughs> point. I mean, I think it's a bit early to talk about uh, a potential polka dot ETF, but of course that you know would be the end goal. Uh, in the meantime, we we will certainly be uh, looking to list that on the OTC market if we can, um, because yeah, to get it into. Uh, you, you know, our, our, our sort of mission is to enable access. And, you know, I'm a big believer in trying to democratize the financial system. Um, so investors who want to access these types of products through their traditional brokerage and IRA accounts, they need a ticker based product to do that. And so that's what we're trying to build for them.
1: Well, Greg, congratulations on that launch. Uh, congratulations on the success at shares with micro sectors. I think I mentioned two and a half billion at the top. That, that number, as I look now, is actually closer to three billion in assets. But uh, really appreciate your time today covering this topic. It's been a, a really popular topic on on the podcast. A lot of interest around this. Thank you for joining me.
0: Absolutely, been a pleasure. Anytime.
1: That was Greg King, founder and CEO of Osprey Funds. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geracey, or you can send comments through ETFPrime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Wisdom Trees' Jeremy Schwartz. We're going to talk investment case for emerging markets and take a look at the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets Ex State-Owned Enterprises ETF. And then Eris Consulting's Damien Bisserier will spotlight the RPAR Risk Parity ETF. Until then.